0: Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.
1: Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.
2: You can support this podcast at patreon.com
3: slash partners in crime media. Meet Namely, the all-in-one HR payroll and benefit software employees love to use. Clock in, schedule a vacation, and more from your desk or on the go. Plus, use the social feed to share company news and give shout-outs for a job well done. Over 1,000 companies use Namely every day. Get a free demo by visiting Namely.com slash crime. Crime. That's Namely.com slash crime. Build a better workplace with Namely.
2: Finding the time to get a lab test? It's almost impossible. impossible. But right now, it's easy, easy to order the tests you want at EverlyWell.com. EverlyWell is an at-home health testing company that offers a variety of physician-reviewed private tests, from food sensitivity to metabolism to thyroid. Thyroid! No more sitting in waiting rooms or waiting on your results. Head to EverlyWell.com and use the promo code CRIME, crime. to take 15% off your first order. Everlywell. Your test on your time, on your terms. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about true crime, pop culture, journalism. And this week, the CBC's Missing and Murdered looks at the unusual case of a Native family looking for their sister, who was taken from their home and died somewhere in the U.S. 40 years ago. Join me to dive into that case and a whole lot more is my true crime co-author and real-life husband. Kevin Flint. Hello, Kevin.
3: I have the power. He Man? Yeah. Okay. I, I what does Aquaman say? I don't know. So I just <laughs> I went with He Man instead.
2: Also with us is journalist, true crime author, licensed private investigator, former defense investigator, and queen of outrage. Laura Bricker.
0: Hello, Laura. Hello. What am I outraged about now? You're always outraged about
2: something. Come on. I am. I am. (laughs) The cable company, the snow. Yeah. And also with us is the acclaimed novelist behind the city trilogy and podcasting's greatest of all time, Doubting Thomas, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hey, Rebecca. It's nice to talk to you all. And I'm going to uh, tell you what we're going to be talking about next week. So you can be um, filled in on that and our listeners can as well. Next week, we're going to be talking about a documentary series called Wild Wild Country on Netflix. It is the super weird story of a super weird cult that took over an Oregon town in the 1970s. And oh yeah. Kevin and I started watching it and that's what we're going to be talking about <laughs> next week. So- is it the
1: Rajnitches? Yes.
2: Yes. You know about yes. the Rajnitches, Toby?
1: Yes, I do. There's a big like two-part New Yorker article about them back in like the 80s. It's really interesting.
2: It is interesting. It's funny and I should have guessed you would know something about this as we started watching this show and I'm like how have I never heard about this crazy ass story before? And a lot of our listeners are already watching it and have asked us to check it out. So that's what we're going to be doing next week. So start watching Wild, Wild Country, guys, because it gets weird fast. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and we have some very, very big news to announce. Kevin, should I drop in that sound effect here? Do it. <laughs> We are in the March Madness podcast bracket finals. Ah. We are in the championship. (laughs) Thanks to our listeners who helped us get through the penultimate round, beating wine and crime. We are now up against the great granddaddy of all radio shows and podcasts. This American Life. It is the four of us Mm -hmm. against Ira Glass. It's the four of us (laughs) against Sarah Koenig. It's the four of us against Ben Calhoun. It's the four of us against David Sedaris. You met Ben Calhoun this week. I did against Sarah Vowell. It is the four of us against the great granddaddy of all podcasts slash radio shows. Uh, Reactions. Kevin, what do you think of this development?
3: Um I think that they don't know anything about us or about this contest. True, true. Um but I think that our listeners will rally. And they'll go and vote because that that's what they've done all but it's so funny because we the four of us know this isn't about us. Oh, we know. You know, it's really about who can get their army out there and man our listeners are like,
2: They're like the White Walkers of podcast are, listeners. They are
3: loyal <laughs> AF. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Um, so it's
3: really their win. So right. I'm like, you know, I'll be happy for us, and but I'm going to be like really happy for the audience. I
2: did meet This American Life's Ben Calhoun this week, right. as you mentioned. I told him about this.
3: Are we also going up against Tony Malatina?
2: Oh, yeah, Tori Malatina. Tori Malatina. Yes, yes. Okay. yes. Right. Um, he didn't know anything about it. And told me about. that the show didn't know anything about it, nor did they plan to do anything about it. So Perfect. I think what as long as this American Life
3: defensive indifference, it's like they pulled ignorant. a goalie from the net.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we can continue to ask our listeners to go to discoverpods dot com and vote for us in the podcast madness bracket. We could win if we beat this American Life. This whole damn thing. Toby, Toby, thoughts?
1: Sarah, Val, and I have been at each other's throats for decades. <laughs> <laughs> this will
3: settle it once and for all.
1: So, yeah, this will be the, the final the final judgment on that.
2: Yeah. Oh, um, man. Yeah, Dana. No,
1: what's going to make my Monday mornings exciting when this is over? I
2: don't know. I, I think our listeners are probably excited huh. to hear us not talk about it on the podcast anymore. But
1: yeah. <laughs> that's probably true as it's well. It's been a
2: fun ride. Right? Laura, what do you think of, the, of us making the finals of the Podcast Madness Bracket Challenge? I think that this means
0: if we take it all the next time you just happen to like bump into Sarah Koenig, She's no longer going to be like, oh, are you the one with the typewriter?
2: Because <laughs> we will have come up in the world by then. I hope yeah. so. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I do want to do a, a huge shout out to our listeners. Yes, those of you who no, have voted. We're
3: the one above you, so that's why you got to like crane your neck to look at us.
2: <laughs> those of you who have voted in the tournament, uh, whether or not you vote for us in the final round, we really hope you do. Kevin can put the link right in our um, sure thing. show notes. And also just go to discoverpods.com to find... The finals. But I do want to give a thank you to our listeners. before 7 o'clock on Sunday. Yes. And as a very special thank you to our listeners, I purchased, this might be news to you, Kevin, A 100 Crime Writers On Oval Bumper stickers. Really? Yes. That I am willing to personally mail to any listeners who have voted during this challenge. Just send an email to uh, crimewriterson at gmail.com. Oh, wow. And the subject line say, I voted for you. And then in the email, put your um, address, and uh, we will pick 100 at random that come in in the next week or so, If uh, whether we win or not, to thank you. And How about send the first 100?
3: Those are the most loyal.
2: Um, Yeah, that's probably fair. First 100. Okay, that's fair. We're changing the rules. That's right. Of the contest. (laughs) So if you want a Crime Writers on sticker and if you voted for us, you know, if you want to send us a screenshot of you having voted, but if you already voted, I don't want to exclude you. So just let us know you voted for us. And uh, as a big thank you to sort of celebrate having made it this far. We didn't think we're going to make it out of the first round. So it's pretty exciting. Now, Kevin, speaking of our listeners, can you do me a favor and introduce us to our latest group of listeners who are supporting the show on Patreon?
3: Yeah, we've got a great group here. We have uh, helping us out by keeping the podcast going with a small monthly donation Our Carol Soella, Julia Reynolds, Bonnie Dew, Lee Bardugo, Broen Carr-Bates, Lisa Gallagher, Eric Kreisman, Esma, Jadiah Cummings, mm. The Getting Off Podcast. Nice. Megan Maxey. <laughs> oh, th- those are lawyers. Okay. That's not what you were oh. thinking. <laughs> Laura. Michelle Bowman, C. Page eighty-eight, Karen McLendon, Chelsea Harlfinger, Big Tim's Funny Books. Mm-hmm. They're in Australia. If you like comics, check them out. Jim du Bois, David Levine, Kate Carson, Alyssa Deuceman. Allison Horrocks, and Rebecca neighbors better.
2: I am 100% sure that you mispronounced at least 75% of those names.
3: That's right. I guarantee I will not say your name correctly. And
2: a special shout-out to Jediah Cummings, one of our new Patreon fans. He's also the super fan that tweeted out all of the references we made to the Podcast Madness Challenge with all the episode numbers on Twitter. Uh, he's he's been cataloging our references to the contest <laughs> and our like disbelief at having made it through uh-huh. each round and uh-huh. it's really really lovely he's a great listener so it is by the way a very good time to join us on patreon because and this might come as news to you Kevin and you Laura That's,
3: sorry we don't Uh-oh. do anything on the show but Just we're about
2: ahead. to make a big change to our patreon oh what's that we're oh. about to hand over the reins of our patreon to mister Toby Ball. Oh, congratulations, <laughs> <What>? Toby. <laughs> Toby, do you want to uh, fill our listeners in on what they can expect if they start supporting Partners in Crime Media on Patreon? What is coming down the pike, Toby Ball?
1: Uh, we thought we'd offer you some content. <laughs>
2: <laughs> wow, what a good idea.
1: It seems like a nice nice part of the deal. So I uh, what we're doing right now, and, and this stuff is still kind of in the formative stages, We'll be doing a monthly crime book club. I think both true crime and crime fiction with uh, all sorts of special guests. And I think also doing a shorter, maybe weekly podcast about fiction writing. We'll probably also schedule some, you know, AMAs, ask me anythings or Facebook lives, stuff like that. So more details to come, but I'm excited to kind of take this on and, uh, have some more stuff for our listeners.
2: And if you want to interact wow. with Toby, that's a good reason. To yeah, exactly. <laughs> just so that you can maybe, I don't know, have a little Toby touch in your life.
4: So uh, <laughs> Toby time. just go
2: to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Check it out. Toby is now running that for us. And, um, Good luck, Toby, and uh, we we wish you well in that (laughs)
1: endeavor. Thank you. Uh
2: (laughs) All right. So, Kevin, uh, can you please read this for me? True
3: Crime Crime Podcast Podcast Update.
2: update. Uh, Now, quick note. Many, 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 many listeners have emailed or tweeted or Facebooked me a link to an article that came out this week on Slate by Laura Miller. It was a piece about Atlanta Monster, and the title of said piece was Clueless. The piece was a very critical look at the podcast Atlanta Monster, pretty much encapsulated many, many of the things that I have long felt about that show. My favorite sentence that describes how she describes the show is a much anticipated reexamination of a crime wave that riveted the nation is a meandering mess, a wasted opportunity to illuminate what has been shadowed for decades. Now, Kevin, you read this Laura Miller piece, right?
3: Yeah, I did. What would you think? Uh, I have nothing more to say about that <laughs> podcast other than that was a very well-written article that seemed to sum up a lot of my concerns about the podcast and everything
2: around it. Me too. And I just want to say um, to all the listeners and it to me, thank you. I have, in t- times, felt a little bit alone in my continuing criticism <laughs> of this show. Uh, I don't think you
3: are ever alone.
2: <laughs> but, you know, it has bothered me to see, like, NPR featuring it. Like, the outlets I respect doing, like, top ten podcast lists that have it on it. And I'm like, I really don't think any of these people have listened. I don't think they have listened. And Laura Miller encapsulates in a very articulate and journalistic way, mm-hmm. the problems. I think it's a really great piece, and we can link to it in our show notes if anyone else is interested in reading it. Laura, did you read this story? I kept seeing it teased. Um, I only saw the new updated photo of the uh, leader
0: of that podcast, which um, looks a lot different than the last time I saw him online <laughs> when I was watching all the
2: YouTube Fat Boy videos. Yeah. So mm-hmm. he cleans up well. Yeah, he does. He does. All right, Kevin, could you please read this for me?
3: Fake, Fake crime, crime podcast, update. podcast update.
2: There's a little podcast called Black Tapes which is uh, one of the first really smash-hit fiction podcasts to come out. Kevin, you're a big Black Tapes fan, right? Yes, I am, actually. Um, Made by our friends uh, Terry Miles and Paul Bay. And that show had what was ostensibly its series finale earlier this year. And... I, full disclosure, never listened to the series finale because I saw a lot of people online complaining a lot <laughs> about the series finale, saying it felt like a shortcut, saying it sort of ended with like this two need a bow with like mm-hmm. Alex and Dr. Strand like running off together and like just dropping the whole plot and all that stuff. Yeah. Surprise. It's like cannibal. <laughs> yeah. Surprise, surprise. This week, new little teaser trailer comes out. Looks like Paul Bay is bringing black tapes back.
3: Hey, guys. All clear. We're good. Good. Okay.
4: We don't have long. We should hurry. We've
1: got a lot 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 to do.
2: Bringing back a series that listeners were dissatisfied with the ending of. Now, I think, Laura, this is something that's, like, unique that maybe you can only do in podcasting, right?
0: Yeah, I, you know, that's interesting. I Now, I gave up on black tapes, I think, in the first season, so I didn't hear the fake-out finale. But, you know, this kind of reminds me of, you had suggested last week that I watch The Killing, and I had not watched The Killing ever, so I started watching it, and I was really into it. And then we were getting ready to tape, and I was getting busy, so I just, like, looked up Wikipedia, and I found out that people were also very dissatisfied with the ending in that, so they ended up making a second season, it sounds like, basically to rectify... What happened in the first season. But with the podcast, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if they're able to regain their momentum coming back after everybody thought it was over.
2: Well, what happened in The Killing was the first season ended and people were pissed, Kevin and I among them. Because (laughs) the first season had, you know, it was really building up to the solving of this case that you know was featured in the first season. And then it just ended. And it was like... What? It was very upsetting. And the reason I suggested yeah. you watch it was because I knew there was a second season in which they actually do solve the case. Okay. <laughs> so I felt comfortable recommending it to okay. you. But yeah, that sucked. Kevin, remember how much that sucked?
3: It did. and then and,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: and then they really had to kind of like twist like everything that kind of happened to get to the person who – was the real killer, Yeah, you know, and, and So Toby,
2: do you think this is something that's, that's a unique opportunity that in podcasting that doesn't exist in other medium, TV movies, books, where you can basically get like a do over with your audience. Cause people are subscribed to your feed and you can just drop something new.
1: Yes. I mean, obviously like producing the episodes requires a lot of work and stuff, but there's not all this other infrastructure that needs to happen. If you're, you know, doing a television show or you're trying to get a book published or whatever, you've kind of got the creative control. So if you want to do it, you can just go ahead and do it. And there's not a lot of people telling you you can't or contracts to sign. Right. So on, so on.
2: Right. It's not like they can just make a new episode of the end of the Sopranos to redo it when people were dissatisfied with it. Mm -hmm. And it's not like people like the end of your book, you can just like, put out another chapter for people to buy Mm -hmm. um yeah i think it's really cool and i i think it's i'm really happy that paul bay took this up because i don't know this for sure but i suspect he was dissatisfied with the way people reacted to the conclusion and and wanted to make something people were happy about so good for him kevin can you please read this for me
3: true True crime Crime tv update. update
2: guys big breaking news are you ready yes Yes. I just heard this before we started recording from our true crime I think I friend. I I going to say. Yep. Sarah Weinman. Tribeca, the festival, they are showing lots of new media products for TV, including the Westworld season two premiere, a first look at an upcoming Pablo Picasso season of the show Genius. But most important at the Tribeca festival is premiering surprise new episodes Of the great granddaddy of all true crime documentaries, The Staircase. The
3: Staircase.
2: Oh boy. We're gonna have some new episodes of The Staircase looking at the final trial of Michael Peterson. And I have to know, Kevin, do you think they will feature the owl theory in these new episodes of The Staircase?
3: I don't know because I don't think that they that Peterson's team like put a lot of weight in it. You're shaking your head like they have.
2: Yeah, Rudolph, his attorney. Like, remember there were some documents that he submitted a a motion around about testing around the owl stuff. Um, Yeah,
3: I mean, I guess I guess they probably could at the time when Criminal did their first episode and they featured the owl theory. The Peterson people did not want to have anything to do with that, because I guess they were fighting a different legal battle. Right, right. Um, So I don't know. I think we would all like to see that. Although, I don't know, Toby, how do you feel about the possibility that Mrs. Peterson was killed by an
1: owl? (laughs)
3: I think we've covered this uh, is before. Is it the same
1: owl that, that killed that woman in Germany? We <laughs> followed them over.
3: It <laughs> came after my neighbor. And
2: I Peter after is you. a Toby is a Peterson gilter. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> but, I love it. You know, wasn't was it Maine? Just like last month that they had to put up signs all over the place because they had owls attacking people. Yep. Where was that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. And I do so, not want anyone to tweet at me crime scene photos of Kathleen Peterson, please. I've got enough of those after tweeting about the owl a couple weeks ago. Oh, man. So <laughs> gross and so inappropriate to send on Twitter. But I just want to hear more about the owl theory. I can't help it. And I'm really hoping these episodes cover it. But more important, I hope these episodes are as high quality as the rest of The Staircase. And if for any of our listeners who joined us, uh, we've, we've talked about The Staircase many, many times. It sets a, a standard for a true crime documentary, how it should be done. It is the greatest true crime documentary of all time. And uh, look for it on demand, wherever you can find it. What was it on Sundance or something, Kevin? It's it was been on Amazon. Sundance. I it's believe. been on Netflix. Yeah. It sort of flicks around. It's one of those. So looking forward to that. Um, Real quick, I also wanted to get into something that a Twitter user sent us. This is a little prompt we were asked to respond to. Okay. This was from Miss Leah. She tweets at Leah's Lounge. And she had this question for us Seems the most important stories stay with, change, or comfort us or shake us to the core, Leah says. I'm curious, as writers, what book had such an impact upon you? And she says, East of Eden by Steinbeck never leaves me, but I can't explain why. So, Toby, I know that you saw this tweet. Have you been thinking about that? And and how would you answer that question?
1: Yeah, I have been thinking about it. I haven't come up with a really good answer. And I know I've mentioned this book before, but um, Financial Lives of the Poets by Jess Walter, I thought, just did a really good job of uh, kind of summing up. What life was like for a certain demographic during the recession. So that that's when I I recommend to people all the time because it it kind of felt accurate to me his sort of observations about things and and the way the sort of economic climate affected families that were roughly like my age.
2: Yeah. So you don't have like a book that you read like as a kid that has always stuck with you that sort of like latched into you that you always think about when you just think about like what makes a great book?
1: Well, there's uh, Ralph Stedman's Jelly Book. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know who Ralph Stedman no, is? I don't. You know who, um, when you take a look at uh, uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. that weird art that's in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's Ralph Stedman, And he did this, He did this book, a kid's book, about how uh, basically Jello is made. Mm. And it's like this really long thing about like there's some emperor. I'm trying to remember the whole thing. Part of it involves like playing tennis. And then there are these cows. And it's like this big thing. And it's got these weird pictures. And uh, I I just remember that that was like the one book that like both my sister and I, like when my parents were sort of distributing some of the kids' books – my sister was there and my sister and I like are totally like fair about everything in that, in those regards. But I got this phone lamp uh, <laughs> that I really liked <laughs> and she was the person who was there when they were looking at the kids books. So she took the jelly book. Mm. So you that's are my weird, story. Toby, you yeah. are yeah, weird. This
0: is like a window into <laughs> <Yeah>. the world. <laughs>
1: right. I Used mean, so go and take a look, Google Ralph Stedman's jelly book mm. I think you'll be charmed.
2: Now we know what to get Toby for Christmas. 18 copies Day of Ralph now. Steadman's The Jelly Book. <laughs> what about you, Laura? How would you answer this question? Any stories, uh, books stay with you? I'm going to be a little more normal, I guess. <laughs> Um,
0: Or predictable, I guess. Uh, You know, I think for me, it's always been animal stories. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, Misty of Chincoteague Mm. was a book that I read and reread over and over again, along with all the books. And these were true stories set on Chincoteague Island. I actually went there probably 18 years ago, and I hunted down the dead stuffed Misty, which was in somebody's house, Hmm. which was (laughs) totally random. In recent years, a really great animal story that I read that was one that Just, it was so good, but it was one that you finished and you were just also so sad because of the story itself. Was the story of Edgar Sautel by David Robleski? And it's a story about a boy who uh, is born mute. He only speaks in sign language. He lives in Wisconsin in this very remote area, and his family raises a fictional breed of dog. And it ends up being kind of a journey that this boy goes on, a very tragic family situation. And it's also like eight or 900 pages long. So it's one of those books that you can't help but become completely immersed in. And um, that was one that just stuck with me because the story itself was just so poignant, but also so sad when Hmm. it ended.
2: I loved Misty of Chincoteague when I was a kid, by the way. You're not alone. Did you? Yes, I loved it. So uh, are you impressed that I found the dead stuffed Misty? Uh, Totally, (laughs) totally. um, I have to go with something that's very different from the things we talk about now. I mean, I don't think I've talked about my love, 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 love for John Irving at all on this no. podcast. Yeah, you should. <laughs> oh, remember, um, I got to meet yes, him. Yes, I took your photo. Yes, my favorite yeah. writer. And it's surprising to me, even to this day, that John Irving is my favorite writer. Even when I remember it always being surprised that I would characterize him that way, because all his books are basically the same. Like, you know, you're reading a John Irving book immediately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They have the same elements, the <laughs> same voice, I, I'm not dissimilar to like Stephen King. in so far that the protagonist is the same archetype over and over mm-hmm. and over again, sort of lone, single, asexual guy looking back at some aspect of his childhood. But my favorite book of all time is Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving. Yes. I have read that book. At least, at least 30 times. It was my litmus test book for a great part of my life. Whenever I would start dating somebody, I would make them read it. And if they didn't like it, I would know there was going to be a problem. (laughs) Um, And it would take a nice, like, long chunk, usually, for people to read it. So, like, you know, it gave me a few months to figure out other things about them in the meantime, because it's a long book. But um, what I love about Prayer for Meaning in particular, A, it takes place in New Hampshire. And I didn't live in New Hampshire the first time I read it. But there's something about this place that's captured beautifully in the book Also, just the I think that John Irving is a master of teenage interiority, even though very often the perspective of the book is looking back. And so it's told in the past tense. He really captures that feeling of what it feels like to be inside a teenager's body and the way that you perceive things. And things are so important. And it's just like sharply, sharply cutting and funny, like these little quick passages that go by uh my favorite line in prayer for owen meanie is there's an, a really famous scene where they're doing a christmas nativity and uh john the main character describes everyone's wearing dingy brown robes which is the three-piece suit of biblical times mm-hmm. anyway i just i love that book I, it's the only book I, I ever like completely come out with quickly when i say what's your favorite book of all time really really beautifully constructed strange and wonderful novel w- what about you kevin
3: well, it's funny that Leah mentions uh, East of Eden because the book that always stays with me is also a John Steinbeck book. And all of Steinbeck's books, I find like the last paragraph or the last sentence of the book is um, such a, a, a revelation about human nature or a God punch. gut punch, something about the plot. And it's just, it happens almost every book in Dubious Battle, Winter of Our Discontent, The Pearl, Red Pony, of Mice and Men, East of Eden was probably, like, number two on the list, but number one, The Grapes of Wrath. Mm. And it's because...
2: <gasps> this explains something.
3: What? Uh- Why
2: every single time we play charades, The Grapes of Wrath is one of your clues. <laughs> like, every single... You are so good at acting out The Grapes of Wrath in charades. You're so good at it.
3: Are we at- <laughs> Are we With the off-topic update again? No. no,
2: no. But really, that does explain it. Yeah.
3: <laughs> but that's the one that all, that always stays with me. And if if you think back to high school when you read it, essentially the scene is that there's you know one of the Joads, you know all the Joads, you know in their giant truck, just all like go out to California, uh, the Okies, and you know Grandma's dead in the back or whatever. And there's the <laughs> there's there's the the woman who loses her child, you know, or is stillborn or something like that, and the man who doesn't have a job and is starving. Yeah. And she breastfeeds him.
2: Oh, the man. The man. Not the dead child. Not the dead child. No, no, no,
3: no. And it just, like, you read that and then read it when you or someone you know is unemployed trying to find work. Right. It's just a gut punch. So I think that's a book that, like, really stays with me. All these years later, almost almost eighty years after it was published, yeah. I think it's still very timely. And a book like that is something that you should just be able to, you know, pick up and slide right into like really comfortably, just like True Religion jeans.
2: <laughs> wow, that is of quite the transition from uh, Grapes of Wrath to True Religion jeans. I'm very impressed, Kevin.
3: Yeah, True Religion are like these really great high-end jeans that fit. Really, really well.
2: You love your True Religion jeans.
3: I do. I do. So, you you order them uh, online through their website, truereligion.com. And in order to do the fitting, like they give you, a, you know, a couple of the usual things like, you know, your height and your weight. But they also ask you, like, well, what other brands are you wearing? So, if you wear this and from that department store, they kind of have an algorithm figuring out, like, from the different things that you wear, what the right size is. Right. And bingo, nailed it. It Absolutely worked? nailed it. Yes, yeah, and they—I got ended up getting jeans that have a slimmer leg, mm-hmm. and you know, usually like a guy shaped like an apple, like me, doesn't want to wear. <laughs> tight jeans. I
2: kinda think of you as a bowling pin.
3: Oh a bowling pin? <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> An upside down bowling pin. I look
3: like a chicken. I like big in the middle, little legs. But they but they but you know Rebecca, like yeah. these ended up like not being tight
2: they at all. They think you beautiful no they just look really good. It's just a fantastic fit. And you know that's look, what, look queer eye action for you in those two religion jeans. It's it's like what Tan would pick out for you.
3: Yeah, yeah, because precision is in fit is what makes them the most comfortable and flattering jeans on the market. They've got everything from like skinny to high rise to boot cut, straight and retro inspired wide leg jeans. And there's a whole bunch of other great stuff on their website for men, for women, all sorts of clothes that are very fashion forward and stuff that's like really elevated. Yeah, you know, kind so of like
2: elevated street chic. Yes. Yes.
3: Yeah, you'll be super comfortable, and you will look great. True Religion jeans are even made with the softer fabric that keeps its shape and it won't fade. And I tell you, after washing them twice. Uh, you know, still great. Are you ready for the perfect fitting, most comfortable, most flattering pair of jeans? Right now, True Religion is giving our listeners 20% off Ooh, their entire purchase. It's a good deal. And they go to truereligion.com slash crime. Crime. And enter code crime at checkout. So do what I did. Go to com slash crime. Crime. And enter code crime at checkout for 20% off your entire order.
2: URL and code crime. Crime. What else you got, Kevin?
3: Well, things that also like to stay with us are stories about strong women. True. Right? Yes. And so if you missed the premiere of The Good Fight on CBS All Access, you can still get caught up because The Good Fight continues. It's got everything that you like about a great drama, exciting plot, relatable characters. Christine Baransky, what else could you want? Baransky. Baransky. You know who else is on, is on the show is Rose Leslie. Mm-hmm. Do you know what she
2: Thrones? Oh, from uh, Game of Thrones?
3: Yeah, you know nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> but she's great in this role, too. I mean, you just want to see she's her... She's
2: married like- to Kit Harington in real life. Just FYI. Side note.
3: CBS loves that you brought that up. <laughs> uh, but the only place you can see The Good Fight, uh, you know, which brings over some of those characters from The Good Wife, is you can only see it on CBS All Access. You can get right now a free trial of CBS All Access by going to cbs.com slash crime. And there you can catch up on all of season one, get up to date on season two, about 10,000 other shows and episodes at CBS All Access that you can watch. And when you're doing that, make sure you do check out The Good Fight drama, excitement, the show that everyone is talking about. And it's got a great theme song, too. Just going to say. Hurry to cbs.com slash crime for your free trial of CBS All Access and tune into season two of the critically acclaimed show The Good Fight. That's cbs.com slash crime for your free trial of CBS All Access.
2: cbs.com slash crime. Crime. Right. CBS... Dot com. dot com
3: slash crime crime that's crazy that's crazy <laughs> right. that CBS on their on their website just went slash crime it's true and it's us
2: it's us it's yes. not Dragnet no it's us it's
3: it's not Marcus Welby
2: no it's us it's us it's us
3: suck at it, CSI
2: it's not Two and a Half Men no <laughs> it's us right. <Pride. laughs>
1: Wait, Marcus Welby? <laughs> I s- wasn't that a TV show? Uh, it's Welby MD,
2: is Yeah, isn't maybe.
3: That? I'm going way back, people. Adam 12, I think. Yes. I don't we should, know. You should
2: probably check and see if those were even CBS programs.
3: Don't send this to them, all
2: right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, The Young and the Restless is on CBS. That's right. Just saying. They don't have the code crime. We do. That's right. <laughs>
3: we have Young and the Restless, and it's long AF.
2: <laughs> all right. Moving on. We're going to be talking about season two of the hit podcast from the CBC, Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo.
4: To have your family member stolen, murdered, then missing. Oh, wait a minute. This is Cleo. Yeah. (gasps) Oh, Oh, my gosh. The government can get away with things if it doesn't, if nobody knows, you know, what happens.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure that information is correct.
3: She was driven away and I went the other way and i've been looking for her ever since promised i'd find her and eventually i will
0: she tried her darndest to get back to canada and see her family she did everything within her power to get
4: back there in my heart i think that killed her
2: are you recording yes is that okay no it's not Missing and Murdered Finding Cleo looks at the case of a girl both allegedly murdered and now missing. In the show, we follow reporter Connie Walker as she hopes to find out what happened to a young Cree Indian girl who died and whose remains are unaccounted for 40 years after she and her siblings were forced into adoption. The investigation highlights the aftermath of a misguided Canadian program called The Sixties Scoop. That took 20,000 Native children from their families and placed them in predominantly white homes all over North America. Now, we are going to be discussing some spoilers in our conversation. So if you'd rather hear our review of whether or not you should check out this podcast, look at the timestamp uh, that we have put in the show notes to find out where you should skip to to get our thumbs up or thumbs down review. I just want to start with the obvious thing, the thing that I told you, Kevin, when I started listening to this podcast and said, yeah, you got to check it out. Mm -hmm. Someone knows something in this podcast. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Yeah. We're not left to, well, we we don't know exactly how things are going to turn out, but we do get an answer to what happened to Cleo.
2: Yes. And that is surprising. And I think really satisfying and and something that's a little bit different than some of the other shows we've listened to. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I do want to talk a little bit about structure because the first three episodes of this show are... Build up and backstory, explaining what it is that Connie's trying to do, what the issue is that led to Cleo's disappearance, and kind of getting a lot of that context and backstory in place. Laura, what did you think of the setup, the first three episodes in particular of Missing and Murder, Finding Cleo, where, you know, we kind of get the backstory, we then visit, you know, Christine, the one sister, we go see April, the second sister, we go see Johnny, the brother in Pennsylvania. And Mm -hmm. really get a full picture of the pain of these people and why this case is so important to them.
0: Yeah. So as I'm listening to the backstory and I'm listening to the thin explanation that they all had about what happened to Cleo. Mm -hmm. And it was this it was really strange to me. It was like they all heard the same story, but nobody knew exactly when or where. They you know, it was like Arkansas, she was she was killed, she was raped. To me it was very mysterious how they all actually heard the same very random, very thin story about what happened. But as I'm listening to everything that they've gone through, and it's basically very transparent the way that Connie is reporting it as she's putting this together. So you're kind of going along with her. You feel like you're kind of in on the action as she is learning everything about what we know to date at that point about Cleo. I was left at that point thinking there was no way in hell they're going to find this girl or mm. what happened to her, because it may have happened here. It may have happened there. We're not sure. We don't know. It, it just seemed like they had so little information to go on and so many roadblocks that they had hit, but also just tragic what had, you know, really separated all these siblings to
2: get to where they were when the story begins with Connie. Right now, now, Toby, you actually have the take that what makes this podcast different is that they start with a mystery that seems solvable.
1: Well it, this may just be showing my ignorance but you're you're trying to find somebody who's not hiding you know it's mostly a matter of, of finding the right records and following a, a a path that that happened 40 years ago while people aren't being necessarily all that helpful. At the same time, there's nobody who's trying to prevent them from finding stuff. So I kind of felt as though she had set up, wisely, this isn't in any way a slam on it, a situation where there could have been a reasonable expectation that they would have been successful in finding what happened to Cleo. And they do. And some of it, there's some sort of luck and coincidence that occurs. But I my sense is that they probably would have found this stuff out anyway. Mm.
2: Well, there was one huge lucky break which was that the producer on the show was, you know, looking at databases and looking at the website findagrave.com which I've actually used in my own work. Findagrave.com is actually a super useful tool to find dead people because it really literally is a database Mm of people's pictures of graves that people have randomly uploaded as one of these crowdsourcing tools. They find the grave. Turns out the grave really is her but then they have this unbelievable break on the reporting trip. And Kevin, this almost exactly the same thing happened to you on a reporting trip. So can you just talk about that real quick?
3: Yeah. I mean, this is the parallel. When I went to Alabama to do some research on Sheila Labar, a female serial killer in New Hampshire, I went to her hometown and went to the county courthouse to look up if she had any criminal records or divorce records, anything like that. And
2: and just like Connie, you were on a very limited time frame.
3: Right. We yeah, hear, you're only in town for a little while. We, yeah. hear,
2: we hear Connie saying a couple of times, like, we're only here for, like, two or three days. And, like, we've had a couple of listeners ask questions about that. But that's legit. That's how these trips work, right?
3: Yeah. 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 Well, you know, your boss is sending you. You're not going to be able to just walk around and do whatever you want. <laughs> you know, like Brian from S-Town. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'll interview the killer. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I had uh, like two days or whatever. So I went to the courthouse and uh, I asked, said, can I see any records on a Sheila Bailey? And uh, I saw like one woman like look like her head snapped up and then she got up from her desk and like sneaked out a side door. Like there was going to be a shootout at the OK Corral and she was like escaping <laughs> through the batwing wing doors. And uh, they said like, go wait, go wait in the hallway. And I'm thinking like, oh, I'm getting the run around because I'm a northerner or some other crap like that. And then this woman comes out and she says, I'm Sheila's sister. And I was like, "Whoa, what? yeah!" <laughs> and she ended up being a great what? source. Yeah, and we're still Facebook oh friends, God. so
2: uh,
3: <laughs> there's that. But it, it is kind of a yeah. I mean, I don't want to say needle in a haystack, but yeah, that is sort of that, that's always sort of a, a surprising turn.
2: Yeah, Laura, yeah. W- what did you think when you heard when you heard this scene? So this is the, the funeral home in that town in New yeah. Jersey where they find the grave. Uh, they're sent there to talk to the owner, Jill, and they end up running into another Jill who just seems like she's just trying to maybe be helpful and just get them some papers and then Jill said she was 13 years old in
4: 1978 the same age as Cleo Medonia it's a long shot but i show her the picture we have of Cleo the one we've been carrying around with us for months so are you from here as well did you i was just wondering if you would recognize her photo No, No. I don't think so. I am from here,
2: but no, I don't recognize her picture.
4: But then she looks at the photo again. Oh, wait a minute. This is Cleo. Yeah. (gasps) Oh, my gosh. Yes, we, um... Wow. (laughs) Yeah, she and I were friends.
2: What? Yes. And... How many
3: of your eighth grade friends are working in funeral...
2: Exactly. (laughs) Laura, what did you think of this break in the story? Um,
0: I was like, this. This is gold. You know, I I loved this whole scene in general because I felt like the suspense kept building. Like they they're at the cemetery and you're you're following. They're walking around looking, and then this old lady comes out. What are you doing? And and then she's like, you got to go see Earl at the other cemetery. And I mean, it just you know, I was really invested at this point. So when they go to this funeral home, and then the girl comes back up and she's got the records, and she suddenly realizes. I, I couldn't even believe it. I, I was like, my poor husband. I'm like recounting this whole thing for him because I was like, you're not even going to believe this. Like, <laughs> I thought there was not a chance in hell they're going to find her. And and they, this random woman at a funeral home was her childhood friend, and you know, and still has was pictures
2: just, of her at her house. It was who keeps amazing. pictures in eighth grade? Like,
0: yeah. how <laughs> right. how can you plan? I mean, you could never have planned something like or expected something like that to happen. But it just made this story. Just so incredible. And and things like this just kept happening in this series, you know, and I'm like, this woman, Connie, is like the luckiest person I know or or something because these just crazy coincidences keep happening as she's reporting. Either that or she's just, I mean, she is just really good at investigating.
2: But Yeah. Well, she's um, also really wow. nice. And she listens yes. to people. And I said this to Kevin earlier, and I'm not 100% sure you agree with me, Kevin. I think she could teach a master class to... Asshole podcasters in how to actually approach people and talk to them <laughs> yeah. Because she actually keeps all of her approaches in the show we hear right. the first knock on the door And when she first talks we hear her walk up to Cleo's dad in the casino
4: Hi, I'm Connie. Oh, hi. Nice to meet you. Yeah. How are you doing good good? Uh, are you winning? There are people playing at the machines on either side of Sydney and it's really cramped. Not an ideal place for this conversation. Could we have a, buy you a coffee or something? Yeah.
2: Yeah? Okay, well, we'll just be over here. Let us know when
3: you're... I, I keep wondering, though, yeah. what is the microphone situation? How come she's walking into these buildings and knocking on doors holding a it microphone? It sounds like the
2: microphone is down low during the introductions. They're off mic during the intro. Yeah. I, it, it sounds like it's you down here. You to a here. casino?
3: Okay, yeah. I'm just... I don't know how that part works. That's kind of how my mind is. Only well, remember, because-
2: they, they did that in the funeral home because the woman asked them to turn the microphone off. And then she made the decision to turn it back on.
3: I'll just say... I I'll, she
2: was taping on her phone or something because it seemed like she's always taping. I, I think it's down low.
3: Look, I'll just say this, folks. Think about where you're working. If somebody walked in and they're holding a microphone, no matter what, and they may be smiling or whatever... That's going to be all of a sudden the thing that you notice. Yeah, and you may make a. De- you're not going to be. Oh, yeah.
2: You'll
3: make a decision about whether or not you want that. To it's continue. a question
2: I would ask Connie, Which like just, just how she's up. holding yeah. it. I yeah. think her producer is holding it. I think they're holding it like just down here. They're not doing this, like in the face. Right. You know, it's a good practice when you arrive somewhere. You start rolling tape before you get out of the car. That's the way you do it to get right. a story. Right. That's how you sometimes right. get great sound of the dog barking in the yard and the scene sound.
3: Right. And if you're David you're not Ridgen, to hide the, the, the wind microphone. chimes that sound like angels, I'm not saying she hid the microphone. I don't I'm think saying she You're it. not supposed to do that. I think. I don't hear anybody reacting to the fact that they're... Somebody just walked in and starts recor- is recording them, right? Right. You know that nobody seems to be concerned about
2: that. Right. But
0: what what it do it you seem like of her? they're oblivious? I to think herself. it's how she presents herself. I think that the way that she presents herself is very non confrontational, very approachable, very like gentle when she c- goes in and starts talking to people. So I think that she kind of disarms them in that way because she's not aggressive in the way that she's going in to talk to people. She kind of eases in, and it seems like the people get ex- you know comfortable very fast. Um, And they don't feel threatened by her. So maybe that's why they're not, you know, noticing the microphone right up front. Or if they are, just her demeanor is making it such that they're not getting anxious about that.
2: She has a very open demeanor as a journalist when she approaches people. And I think that she has the secret weapon of being Cree. So when she talks to people who are also indigenous First Nation Canadian people, the first conversation they have is, where are you from?
4: Mm-hmm, where right. are you? And
2: so she's able to sort of use that as an inroad. When she talks to people who are white here in the States, she approaches them like, this is not my first choice to be doing this. Hello, here's what I'm doing. Here's who I am mm-hmm. in a way that's transparent and warm. And she doesn't push. And she's being herself. She's being which, herself.
3: Which... which uh Works in her favor. And she's
2: not being like the kind of journalist that I think... I've heard her do things in the show and Laura, you might uh, feel the same way, like when she went to visit April and April said, April promises to send us a copy of that file. I'm like, no, Connie, take the file, go to Kinko's, make a copy yeah. of it yourself and bring it back to April. Like, <laughs> But Connie's approach is just like, can you send me a copy of that? And the person's like, sure. And she's happy to walk away and just let them be. And I'm just like, wow, this is her secret weapon. This is her approach. It's also, yeah. I think, Toby, I think it's her narrative approach as well. And I think that we probably, I'm just guessing, would all agree there are times in this show where it unfolds very slowly and it's sort of like revealing layers slowly and there's a lot of just like slow down moments. But Toby, what do you think of that style of storytelling? You know, that that some things are just let to kind of unfold at their own pace in that same kind of relaxed, slowed down way that that I think Connie also kind of just is.
1: Right. And I think she's smart in that that stuff doesn't happen until you're you're pretty into the story.
2: You mean this the slow parts happen later in the podcast? Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah. So I you know, I was listening to I, I don't know like five and six or something today and I was driving and there is like there's there's like a, a part of it where they're basically driving in the car and she's making a bunch of phone calls and sometimes she's getting people and sometimes she's not. But it works. You know, because you're also kind of interested in what's going to happen when they when she reaches these people. So I, I think there's a way in which you kind of get put into her shoes. You know, you have the same sort of uh, feeling of expectation about what she's going to find out. And then when she gets when they go um, to Little Pine uh, in Saskatchewan, things go pretty slowly there too. But you get a sense that that's a reflection of just. You know, how interactions there are. Mm. You know, it, it, it's sort of unhurried.
2: Thinking about those scenes and especially when she first gets to Saskatchewan and she's talking to the men and they're talking about like the pipe ritual and the whole teepee thing. I kind of feel when listening to those, like that's the story she really wants to tell. She really wants to show us this kind of lost culture and these uh, the stories of these people who are there and who have all these memories. Like to me, that's where Connie's like storytelling heart is. And she's wrapped it in this framing device of this mystery, which is important, and it's a driver for the story.
3: But it's an opportunity to tell the story of the 60s. School. It's an
2: opportunity to yeah. tell the 60s, school, and it's an opportunity she, to, to she, have us meet the people.
3: Yeah, where she's able to talk about the schools in the first season of Missing and Murdered. How
2: Alberta it, Williams, yeah. Yeah,
3: how that kind of gets get brought in I think it's the same thing it's it's an opportunity but it, it's not a, it's not a cheap one because it's actually very relevant to mm-hmm. to this story right. and what ended up happening to Cleo and how she was taken from Saskatchewan and wound up in New Jersey you know which is it's almost like a punchline in there if you're from New Jersey or something like that but the uh, you know that whole thing is is all sort of relative to the system that brought her there and like We know, I mean, we're in the spoiler part of the podcast. Okay, we find out halfway through this series that she died by her own hand Mm -hmm. at age 13. So the idea that maybe we're going to get the answer to the question, who killed Cleo? We know that that's not exactly what we're going to get. But I think that we already know the answer. Who killed Cleo? The system.
2: Question, Kevin. Why would there be an open police file on somebody who committed suicide?
3: Well, and it probably doesn't have anything to do with her suicide. It there has might be another crime. Mm. Another crime that she's associated with. And look, they keep dangling this this story about a, a hitchhiker mm-hmm. who got raped. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but I'm guessing that that's going to tie in.
0: What do you think, Laura? I think there's going to be more to the story if they can ever, if she can ever get her hands on that police file, because that, you know, that seems like a lot for a suicide. I mean, it was a child. So that that definitely makes it more unusual. I feel like there's going to be something else about that investigation that made it go on as long as it did from the way and the way that nobody would talk about it. I I feel like there's something else, like another piece of that puzzle
2: that is going to be revealed at the right time. Yeah. Can we just talk about Johnny, please? You mean Samson? Yeah, I really want to talk about Johnny. Mm-hmm. We meet three, primarily meet, we meet more than three, but we primarily talk to three of Cleo's siblings in this podcast. There's Christine, who brought the story to Connie. There's April, who lives in a mysterious New England city that Kevin and I were like doing our best to guess at which city it <laughs> was. Same mysterious here. New England town. I am leaning toward Northern Vermont myself, but we have I don't apartments, know. With we have apartments with buzzers. We apartments with buzzers. I don't know. Anyway, um, and then there's Johnny, who was adopted to Pennsylvania after being basically bribed by the Canadian government with hockey camp and a bicycle, which, fucking bananas story, but who sees himself now as an adult as being relatively at peace with the pain of his past. He knew his mother the best of all of the kids. He had to take care of the kids himself when he was a little kid, and he's turned into this incredibly tragic, incredibly stoic, incredibly lovable but sad adult man almost seems like a, a fictional character Johnny does. Toby, what do you think of this character? I I, I kind of think he's like the heart of, of the podcast myself.
1: Yeah. There's a lot going on with him. Obviously. One of the things that really struck me was when his cousin back in Saskatchewan was talking about how he just wished that it's confusing, but, but Johnny is called Sammy back home because his middle name is Samson but he was saying that he wanted Johnny to come home and Johnny says that he doesn't want to go back. But the reality is, is that he's he's fairly assimilated.
2: Mm.
1: You know, he he talks about how he's got a decent enough life and he's got his friends and you feel as though, well, he's he's a tragic and, and clearly unhappy figure that that he is where he, where he wants to be. And he feels sort of at home where he is. At that point. So it's like this weird thing where, where the ultimate goal of this awful program, it ends up kind of being, I wouldn't say successful, but its goal is achieved with him in that he, he doesn't have any interest in going back to, you know, the reservation. He basically is living the life of an American in Lancaster Pennsylvania mm. there's a whole lot going on with him
2: yeah he seems really to me very broken you know Kevin we hear those scenes where he's talking about being abused on the farm where he was adopted out and I can
1: say this now because I
3: told friends about it it wasn't any kind of insertion or nothing they played like oh you're the you're the cow we're the bull it was a weird game <laughs> but it was like at the time you don't think nothing of it but it was like is nothing inserted but it was still strange I thought about it. I'm like, I was sitting one day thinking about it. I'm like, I think I was. I came to Revelation. I think I was abused, but I wasn't really abused. Does that make sense?
2: No, Johnny. That was definitely abuse. Yeah. Like, as a listener, you want to like talk back to him, mm-hmm. you know? And he has, you know, all these memories. Right, that he's yeah, just he's saying, I'm, I'm I'm fine with this. I'm fine yeah. with that. And it's so painful, right?
3: Yeah, you know. And yeah. I thought one of the um, there were just a couple of times where. People let their emotions get the best of them. Like Christine, there were a couple of times when she was talking about her mother and, you know, she started to cry when she was talking to the uh, the government official. Mm. And like you really could, uh, I mean, you really could feel her pain. And and then when Connie told the cousin in Little Pine the news about what happened to Cleo, you could tell he was, you know, sniffling and he was, he was fighting back some tears. And she said something like, do you want to, are you okay? Or do you want to take a moment? And he just said like, I'll deal with it later. Right. Which is just like he just, I'm just basically saying, what I do is I stuff it down and then I wait till I get home and then right. I deal with it then, right. you know, or maybe I don't. I, it's, um, you know. It's, it's hard. It's hard. And, you know, that's one of the strengths of the podcast and the interviewing is that, you know, you you get people to really open up and you can see their pain. You can hear their pain.
0: What you were saying, Kevin, reminded me of when Connie tells Johnny that she's found Cleo. Right. And I'm like waiting for this big reaction. And he he doesn't really react. He was arguing with her about the date, remember? Like he just argued yeah. about the, the
2: the logistics.
0: Yeah, I think she even said to him I was expecting more of a response. Thinking about it afterwards, I think, you know, somebody that grew up like he did had to learn not to respond. So, yeah. I think that his response to finding out about Cleo actually is very telling because it's it's really you know, a sign of
2: what he went through right, right. in his life to that point. I, I do think that some people who are used to a different kind of podcast, a different pace of podcast may find a lot of the backstory and family stuff takes away from what they want, which is action in the story.
4: Right. This
2: story is different from anything we've listened to like it because to me... If it I almost think of it like a novel, the action in the story doesn 't matter without hearing about the impact um, and I am not a fan of grief porn, as you know i mm-hmm. don 't like over focusing on victims in these cases over focusing on family pain. i just I know people get wrapped up in that sometimes, but it can take away from just sort of like you know the what happened aspect of it, but the pain is what happened in the story what 's interesting to me is that I have relatives that were alive when I was little and who died and who I never met. I don't think about what could have been different if I had had the opportunity to meet and know those people Mm -hmm. because I didn't have my entire culture ripped away from me involuntarily. So the reason that these siblings care so much about a sibling they barely remember is because the opportunity wasn't even there. That's what they're grieving is the opportunity. We get into a lot of history and a lot of of the stuff around what the Canadian government did and how they're coping with it. But um, episode eight, the episode title, Salesman of the Year. Oh, Thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> I have a feeling some outrage.
0: I had some outrage, Rebecca. I went out today at lunchtime. You know, I, I've had cabin fever. So I'm trying to go to lunch and do a walk. So I was like walking. We have a route up and down the river here in town. And I was listening to that episode and I started like swearing. Thankfully, there was no one around me. I was like, <laughs> what the f-? Are you (laughs) are you kidding me? Like salesperson of the month for getting children adopted? It was it enraged me. And I was surprised. Speaking of reactions, I felt like Connie and Marnie weren't as outraged about it as I thought they should be as they were. I mean, they kind of were, but they they weren't. But or maybe they just were used to it at that point in the research. But it's just such a commentary on like The state of what was going on in like the Canadian like social work slash adoption system at that time that they were able to internally in that agency joke about, quote, selling children, the most children, especially these native children, into homes. That's when the pace picked up for me again. Right. In in this, you know, I I was kind of like we kind of had a little bit of a lull. We're kind of following up. I mean, we did have the random encounter with the dad in the casino. And then the salesperson episode, I just, Yes.
2: Yeah. Pissed me off. And that commercial.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Crazy. Oh, my God. Well, let's let's talk about like the pacing and the, and the style and the, and the and the potential flaws here, because, I mean, mm-hmm. we, we've talked about what's happening in the podcast. Which mm-hmm. We all agree is super interesting and, and contextually important structure. We have, you know, a climax really in the midpoint of the episodes we've heard so far. Right. And then a lot more after that. Kevin, what do you think of the structure of this so far?
3: Well, I think it's very classical plotting uh, structure. Where you have the climax sort of in the the middle, and then you have the falling action afterwards. And that, sort you know, sort of like what happens because of the climax, the fallout. And and, and a lot of times with a mystery, you know, it's it's weighted so that the climax happens at the end, mm. at the very end. You know, we get get sort of the surprise. You know, I kind of thought, okay, you know, we we hit that episode, and you find out that she was she kills herself, and there's probably not a crime associated with that. There's nothing left to tell of the story, but there is. Right. It's structured as such that this is this is Connie's journey from start all the way through the things that she discovers. So that's good. I do have some other concerns about the narrative style, which I think you're gonna you're holding your finger just up for so you one want second. me to put a pin in. Can I just ask you a question about yeah. the
2: climax? The moment just before the climax. Yeah. Before we knew about the suicide. Yeah. <laughs> when I heard about the suicide, I felt really bad about one thing. What's that? How I was yelling. You were in the car, and I were in the car together, listening to uh, episode. The episode right before when yeah. she has the meeting with Jill. Yeah. And Jill just refuses to tell her what happened to Cleo. <laughs> and I'm like, Why do you have to be such a bitch, Jill? Just tell her <laughs> yeah. what is the matter, Jill. Like that build up part was just. It was. Yeah. It was true. It's what happened. But it was also like so frustrating and like a really great way to yeah. sort of preclaim. I, 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 I
3: totally suspected that. That's what the answer is. I didn't. Be if they, if Why they... did you say something to me yeah, I when I was in too. the car?
2: <laughs> Did
3: why didn't think? I say? Well, did I? Well, I didn't want to ruin it for you. But, but <laughs> why else would you know? Would you say? Oh, well, she had a pneumonia and died. Yeah, like what? What be? What did sp- you
2: think, Laura? I thought that somebody in her foster family killed her. I thought that maybe Jill just was un- was unsure what the details were and yeah. she didn't want to get it wrong. What, so, Toby, you thought that the suicide was what was going to happen, too?
1: Yeah, I mean, that that seems like the one you know most likely thing that somebody would not want to hmm. be the one to impart to somebody else you know yeah
2: Toby, what, it works really well
3: narratively though because you think when you find her you're also going to find out exactly what happened to her and you're going to get those two things like right at once right but instead you it, that gets dragged out because you get one but you don't get the other so now you're like waiting for the the other thing so um, not that like people intentionally held back to to build the suspense but that was sort of a natural outcome of the fact that they they believe they found her but they don't know what happened to her.
2: Right, right.
1: It would have been shitty fiction, but it was... It was, real, it was good you know, real life. Yeah, for yeah. nonfiction, the fact that it's real added that bit of suspense or, or waiting or whatever.
2: Now, Kevin, um, we share, I think, a justified criticism of this podcast. Do you want to be the one to, um,
1: to yeah. talk about that? Part of it is
3: Connie's narrative. And I know, you know, uh, get griefer, like the the Canadian storytelling way. And I, I don't think this has anything to do with it. But... Look, there's an over-reliance on the rhetorical question Mm -hmm. to move things along, and it ends up being a real crutch and a distraction.
4: Yeah. Mrs. Madonia told me that Cleo had attempted to go back to Saskatchewan, but she didn't say how. Did she try to hitchhike? Was that news story we read about a teenager being assaulted at all related to Cleo? If not, what would lead such a young girl to take her own life? Was there any doubt that it was a suicide? If not, why did police do such a comprehensive investigation? What is in that thick police file? Why does her biological family believe Cleo was murdered?
3: Context is important, and you can give it, and you can do it in that way. But if you count up the number of question marks in her script, Mm. I mean, it's excessive. And I I tell you, once you hear it, you can't unhear it. It is It is. Persistent, and if I if I were a figure skating judge, I would be knocking lots of points off of this, off of what's a really good program, right? Right. So I just wish that it you know it could you know dial back a little bit of the. uh, I can't
2: help but wonder, and the questions, yeah, yeah,
3: and the word heartbreaking gets used at least once an episode,
2: Oh more than once an episode. Yeah. Yeah,
3: and I'm like, you don't have to tell me what's heartbreaking. Right. Either I know it. It's, it's it, Yeah. You don't have to point that out. That's one thing you don't have to point out.
2: Right. I I, I do feel it's like all
3: tell and no show. When
2: when is. you hear her say that to a, an interviewee, mm-hmm. when someone tells her a story oh, that's and she says that's, oh, that's heartbreaking, heartbreaking. No, like no. that should that's stay. Fine. That no. should stay. Yeah, that should it. stay. When she says it's heartbreaking to think of da 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 da. To me, that's like the whole point of this is that we shouldn't need that. This is well done enough that we don't need it. Mm-hmm. We don't need you to tell us. Because it is, it just is, and we don't need you to tell us. I can't help but think. But I can't help party. but think about and the story that her family heard about her death. Yeah, we're already there because you've done a really good job putting this together.
1: Yeah,
3: it's it's too much a one sauce on a really good steak.
2: Toby, do you hear the same thing that Kevin and I hear
1: when we listen to this? I, I did. I did notice it. I I did notice it, and it didn't necessarily. Bug me, but it is like it's a noticeable tick. Mm. There
3: I, are other podcasters we've
1: smacked down for this kind of thing. Yes, so I think but to be it, but here's the big consistent. Yeah, yeah, no, that's I yeah. mean it's it's not that it the podcast is perfect in every single way. Right. And this doesn't
3: disqualify it as a good podcast.
1: Yeah, that's this that's a legitimate criticism. Yeah, because
2: and the other thing is it's like so much else of it is so well constructed. You know, I actually really like the exposition that Connie does that's just like telling us what she did, I like I think my favorite exposition in the show is when, you know, they do some stuff that is like something you're hearing more sort of like Nat sound exposition where she'll say, all right, we're, we're getting out of the car and we're going to talk um, to So." So Jen and I are off to, to talk to Nora.
4: Um, I'm, I'm really excited to actually talk to somebody who knew Lillian as an adult because I don't feel like we've talked to anyone who's actually um, been able to tell us what Lillian was like, but... You know, Nora is,
2: she's in her 80s, so <clears throat> we'll have to see w-
4: just how much she remembers.
2: And she does that, and then she doesn't repeat it by saying, we got out of the car, and then we yeah. talked to so-and-so. <laughs> right. Like, she, she just leaves what she said there to set the scene in as the exposition. I like that, and I like it when she tells somebody that what they just said is heartbreaking. I don't like it when she tells me that it's heartbreaking. But I do think that those things stick out because she does such a good job of demonstrating how much something hurts like she can just let it sit and leave that, and then leave that quiet.
1: The thing that bugged me the most, and I, this is super nitpicky, and and I'm gonna regret saying it, but when they're reading the uh, the reports. Mm. And there's like the typing in the background.
2: Yeah, yep. Unnecessary.
1: Yeah. I was just like, you don't need to do that thing. Yeah. It no, just, I I, I didn't like that weird. either.
2: I, I didn't like it either. I think that they did it for the first time to demonstrate they were doing the, um, you know, that the, there was an actor, mm-hmm. which I think is fine to do it as an audio cue once and then to like have it just be like a quick audio cue here and there. But then it was just underneath a whole, the whole track of typewriting was underneath the person talking. That's whoever mixed it. I would just say I wouldn't have made that choice. But, you know, it is nitpicky. I agree. All right. Is it time for us to review this podcast, you think? Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo. Okay. Uh, Should our listeners check this podcast out? Should they listen to the eight episodes that have dropped so far and get into this story from Connie Walker and the CBC? Lara Bricker, thumbs up or thumbs down? I'm going to start with you. I say thumbs up. This is um, one of the more interesting
0: podcasts we've listened to in some time. And uh, unlike... uh... (laughs) Not to throw shade at the other Canadian podcasts they keep advertising, but, um, you know, the mystery is solved. It's not like some of these these podcasts we listen to where they're trying to find something out and they don't find a satisfying bit of information. We find it out. And then not only that, but you're also, you know, I was not aware of all this background that she gets into about the 60 scoop and the residential schools. Um, I knew some of that from the last podcast. So it's, it's um, it, an issue that I think needs to have some awareness brought to it. And this was a, a good uh, vehicle to do that. Toby, what
2: about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down on missing and murdered finding Cleo from the CBC.
1: You know, I think of, of the podcasts we've listened to, this is probably the most emotionally resonant of them. And I think in a way, like you were talking about how you don't like grief porn. I really don't like grief porn, but that this is not that. No, you know I agree. Th- this is telling. It's telling a story that's illustrative of a much much bigger story. Sometimes I talk about like, well, you know, what's the point? Why is this a podcast? And it's just so clear in this one what it is. You know. Uh, a big thumbs up for me. I think it, I think it's really a, a top podcast among the ones who we've listened to.
2: Yeah, I agree. I'm giving it a big thumbs up, too. Uh, if we were doing letter grading, I would say this is very close to an A. There is just a whole lot of there there in terms of what the story is about on its surface, which is the mystery of finding Cleo. And then below the surface, which actually to me is really what the show is about, I, as Toby mentioned, am not a fan of focusing, overly focusing on impact, overly focusing on victims, overly focusing on grief. In this show, it's exactly what we need. I have been, found myself getting very emotional while listening in a way that is good for me. Somebody who is learning something, somebody who's connecting with strangers who I'll never meet. This to me, this show, when it's at its best, does what only audio can do. Which is take you to places and and put you in front of people and put you in situations you would never otherwise be in. And you feel immersed in, in them. You feel like it's very intimate. And we have an extremely likable and compassionate and talented journalist and storyteller doing the work. And I, I just I like and respect Connie so much. Never met her in person. But this show makes me feel like I know her. And that is the hallmark of good storytelling. So big thumbs up for me. What about you, Kevin?
3: I'm also a thumbs up. I, I you know, I do have some issues with um, some of the writing at, that we've gone over. However, uh, I do think this is a great investigative job that she's done. Again, we're in the spoiler-free section here. But I'm just going to say from the start, when she says, uh, we got a name, we think. We don't really have a date of birth. We, we don't really know where she went or how she died. I'm kind of like why are you exploring this <laughs> this is going this is going nowhere um, and so uh, the story that they are able to tell from there on out and the way they're able to weave it into sort of the historical narrative uh, about this time in Canadian history which just uh, say a lot of us don't know much about yeah you know it's very enlightening and it's a good way of sort of bringing the two things together because one enhances the other so someone
2: really does know something
3: someone really does know something so I'm um, a thumbs up this is a really sharp sounding podcast, mm. just like you will be a sharp-looking person when you wear your clothes from La Tote. <laughs> <laughs> All right, look what I
2: have here. That is a very strange transition.
3: I'm reaching in. What is this, Rebecca? This bag That is in. my
2: bag from La Tote. La Tote. Let's yes. see what
3: this is. Remember, La Tote wow. is the delivery service where you're for just about $59 a fully. month. This is real. You can get great clothes like Ooh, this. Emerald
2: green cardigan. Emerald green is the color of the year, by the way. Uh-huh. I wore this sweater yesterday. All
3: right, let's see. What are these pants?
2: They are burgundy, like uh, jean leggings. Very cute. Very, very cute. Yep, I'm gonna wear them tomorrow.
3: Good, all right. Reaching in, pulling this out. What do we got here? It looks like a
2: magical mystery bag. Beautiful short sleeved mock turtleneck black, very sleek with this cardigan. And these burgundy leggings. And what's not in there yeah. is the beautiful silver uh, bracelet, which I am keeping no, and a, not sending back.
4: It's another uh, piece of jewelry. Yeah,
2: there's another piece of jewelry, a little necklace that I am sending back. I wore it once, wonderful, right. but I'm keeping the bracelet, not sending it back.
3: Right, right. These are all fantastic <laughs> clothes, remember? The, and they're picked, not at random, it's because uh, Rebecca it worked, for me. Yeah, worked with uh, her her fashion team. Yeah, and, and they and know what I like because them.
2: they know what I send back and they know what I keep.
3: That's right. It's the easiest thing to do. It's like getting a new wardrobe Every week. Every week. Go to Letote.com. That's L-E-T-O-T-E.com to get started. Enter promo code CRIME Crime. at checkout to get 50% off your first month. Get a bag of clothes like Rebecca does. Uh, From there, you'll get your complimentary customized tote within days. You'll wear it all. And when you're done, just return the rest in the mail.
2: You don't even need to wash it. Just stick it in the envelope and send it Just stick it right in
3: there. (laughs) You folded it nice, though. They'll uh, start preparing your next tote immediately. And again, that's latote.com. Enter the code
0: CRIME. CRIME.
3: And always have something new to wear.
0: The Latote boxes, by the way, double as like the best makeshift cat beds that I have ever seen. (laughs) And I'm starting to look like an episode of Hoarders because I probably have about 10 of these things around the house because my cats love them so much along with the little tissue paper that comes in them so right. uh, you know there's more to La Tote than just the clothes alright that's that, not weird at all
3: is, <laughs> that, is that something else you can cut out and into the advertisements? they don't always say that <laughs> <That's> oh, okay. <laughs> okay
2: what
0: else you got, I've taken Kevin? pictures of them
3: <laughs> <laughs> well when you want to look sharp uh, you want to look good in front of your computer and that's why Felix Grey glasses are great utilitarian and fashion-forward thing for those of us who spend their days in front of screens. Like me. Yeah, Felix Gray's lenses are specially designed to filter blue light and eliminate glare from screens. Uh, those are the two main culprits of digital eye strain. So I gave uh, a pair of Felix Grey glasses to our daughter, Lily. Yep, she loves her. She's uh, them all the time. Yeah, now she doesn't need to wear glasses, but she likes them a lot. They look good on her. Yeah, She's wearing them all the time when she's in school but using a computer yeah they look really great and they do work they are handcrafted from Premium Italian acetate—the same stuff that Versace uses—so they seriously look good. All orders are f- free shipping and free returns, so you've got nothing to lose except that annoying eye strain.
2: And a little, you got gain a little glasses wardrobe while you're at
3: it. They come in both non-prescription and reading lenses, and prescription lenses are in the works. Give your eyes the break they deserve. Go to felixgrayglasses.com/crime to try a pair of Felix Gray computer glasses and discover a smarter way to work. That's slash crime Crime. Crime. FelixGreyGlasses.com slash crime.
2: Crime. Now it's time for my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the Crime, crime of, of the, the week. week. Thanks to our good friend, Sarah Plord who tweets as Rude Parasol for <laughs> uh, alerting us to this must-do crime of the week. When she found the Tinder app on her boyfriend's phone, Emily Javier decided she would kill him. She waited for him to fall asleep and then attacked him with a samurai sword she had purchased and then taped to the side of their bed. Alex Lavelle woke to his girlfriend hacking away at him. But Alex, who also goes by, quote, Biggie, had spent many of his 29 years playing video games and watching kung fu movies. So he blocked some shots and wrapped his attacker up before she fled. Quote, I've been preparing my whole life for something like this, (laughs) he told the Oregonian, crediting his 12-hour-a-day bouts of virtual video game combat. In fact, he spends so much time playing video games that he even claims he doesn't have time to cheat on his girlfriend. Quote, she obviously didn't want anyone else to have me so Samurai sword. So
3: samurai sword.
2: <laughs> Javier has pled not guilty to first degree attempted murder charges. Biggie sustained several wounds from head to toe and doctors reattached three of his fingers. But he's found ah. the whole incident to be very life affirming. Quote, I was just so proud for beating this samurai wannabe crazy lady with hate in her heart, he said. I've played all the sports, won big games, landed some decent tricks on my snowboard, and this was better.
3: (laughs) Oh,
4: God.
2: So here's my question for you, panel. What secret power did you develop throughout your life or perhaps as a kid that you would wield in the face of extreme danger. Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. I I
0: wouldn't say it's the most exciting thing, but I grew up on a farm, uh, so I learned to drive a tractor. And as we're gearing up for yet another nor'easter here, um, like the fourth one in, what, three weeks. Yep. Um, it's come in very handy as an adult. Uh, storms could be deadly. We had one like three years ago when I was trapped, you know, in like three feet of snow, and I, I plowed out with the tractor. So um, that's potentially life-saving. <laughs> <laughs>
2: you could be like in The Shining, right? Remember in The Shining when they escaped in that snow cat? <laughs> I mean, I almost had to drive my tractor to the polls last week to
0: vote, you know.
2: (laughs) What about you, Toby? Uh, What secret power you developed as a kid could you wield in the face of extreme danger?
1: I'm not sure how effective it would be in extreme danger, but I can take a grape and throw it really high in the air and catch it in my mouth. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so potentially that would be distracting or something
2: Yeah, no, that, that's really, really good Like you do good. a couple
1: of those So you throw one really high And while he's watching it, you just run mm. I guess that's my <laughs> that's my answer
2: What about you, Kevin? What uh, secret power did you develop as a kid That you could wield in the face of extreme danger?
3: Uh, if I was being attacked I could uh, pop a zit And get the pus right in the guy's oh, eye
2: Oh, wow. Wow. God
0: wow. That's, yeah. that's, oh. A, that's a power? Like a squid. I don't think I'm going to recover from that You've been training oh.
2: your whole life for that?
3: I've been waiting, I've been training my whole life just for that <laughs> crazy samurai lady with hate in her heart.
2: <laughs> we, yeah. should, we should probably wrap things up on that note, Laura Bricker. Before we close the show, do we have a cat of the week this week? <laughs> uh, we have a dog of the week this
0: week, my favorite um, animal. and it. It is a local New Hampshire dog. uh, (laughs) Toby's booing. (laughs) Tweeted out by the great Jason Schreiber. I thought he wrote the story, but he did not. It was in The Union Leader. A Portsmouth, New Hampshire dog has become an internet star for having human-like features. Um, (gasps) I've seen that dog with the human face. (laughs) Yes, Yogi, a one-year-old Shih Tzu poodle mix, caught the attention of social media companies because his picture ended up on Reddit. His owner, Chantal... So has been interviewed this week by People Magazine and Inside Edition. She didn't realize how human Yogi looked until her friends pointed it out. Um, she likes the online comparison to Nicolas Cage dressed up like an Ewok the most, as far as the comparison. Meanwhile, a local veterinarian <laughs> in New Hampshire. The photo. <laughs> I Did just see it. It's I so just showed Kevin the photo. It looks like one of those like mashup Computer photos, mash-up. yes. Of a human face and a dog Yes. So, according to veterinarian Alan Tucker at the Daniel Webster Animal Hospital in Bedford, New Hampshire, some breeds of dogs can be groomed to look more like humans. "Quote: A lot of it depends on how you trim hair and face." So, um, you know, this picture is hysterical. It was some good news this week in the midst of, like I said, Um And I think you guys should try this with your dogs.
2: Yeah. Uh, no, because that picture is creepy AF. <laughs> I have to say, I actually saw that on Reddit and I didn't realize this was a New Hampshire person. I'm thrilled that this is a New Hampshire dog. We can claim it for our home state. Kevin, does that dog not look superhuman?
3: Absolutely. You got to get Sean McDonald and Amy, Amy Cavino on this. <laughs> get the TV station over there. And- do a whole Chronicle episode about it.
2: <laughs> I think that one or both of them might listen to the show, so maybe they'll get, take that idea and run I, I with it. I don't think they listen Yogi. this long. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Laura Bricker, if people want to send their human-like dogs and cats to you <laughs> for consideration as Cat of the Week, how can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, if people want to tweet to you, maybe get you to take a video or photo of yourself catching a high-tossed grape in the air in your mouth, how can they find you online?
1: Uh, It's at NH, and I'm I'm not sure I heard right. Did you say that that you can breed dogs to look more like humans?
0: You can groom them. Trim their hair. Oh,
1: groom them. Oh, God, Toby. (laughs) How would
3: you breed? Never mind. I don't know. I don't know.
1: That... that, I was hoping I'd misheard. I guess I had. That would
3: be one and happy pug, I'll tell
2: you. (laughs) Kevin Flynn, if if people want to reach out to you and and give you their unsolicited dermatological tips, how can they find you on Twitter? I'm at Aquaman,
3: bitches. (laughs) Vote. (laughs) Vote, bitches.
2: (laughs) Vote in the uh, Podcast Madness finals of the Podcast Madness bracket. We really think, I don't think we know we're not a better podcast than this American life, but we could beat them if everyone votes at discoverpods.com. Be a
3: good flounder. Go vote.
2: And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at RebLavoy. Tweet to our show at Crime Writers On and join the fine folks in the official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group or leave a comment on a regular Facebook page. Subscribe now to get exclusive ad-free content from stitcherpremium.com slash crime. And of course, sign up for the new Toby Ball Run Patreon At any amount, you can support the show at Partners in Crime Media uh, on Patreon. If you love the show or any of other shows, tell a friend, leave a review on iTunes, it makes a difference. Our theme song was performed by Rock Steady Freddy and the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble. And this show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi Studio, formerly known as Studio C. But it's released really a closet in our basement now wallpapered with printouts of a certain article by Slate. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later. Let's play charades on the on mic, shall we? Okay, go ahead. You do a charade. Right. A book. Uh, three words. First word. <laughs> Grapes of wrath. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, do another one. Right, You're uh, so good at charades. All right. A movie. Two words. First word. Two syllables. First syllable. Four. Second syllable. Sleep. Dream. Rest. Yawn. Rest. Forrest Gump. Yes! <laughs> Why didn't you just act out Forrest Gump?
3: This was better to do that.
4: <laughs> In crime.
3: Media. Meet namely, the all in one HR payroll and benefit software employees love to use. Clock in, schedule vacation, and more from your desk or on the go. Plus, use the social feed to share company news and give shout outs for a job well done. Over one thousand companies use Namely every day. Get a free demo by visiting namely.com crime. Crime. That's namely.com crime. Build a better workplace with namely.